but we wish you safe travels as you go. So, bye. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> All right, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to 1 John chapter 4. If you do not have your Bibles, then it will be hopefully on the screen behind me. Eventually, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, alrighty, so verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. May God bless the reading of his word. So John continues on and he keeps on hammering away this point. Love. And love is so important to the Christian faith. And sometimes as we um, continue to grow older in the faith and sometimes as we continue to um, learn new things about God, we can kind of almost underemphasize this love that God has for us. And sometimes we can forget just how powerful that love is to transform us and to change us so that not only are we loved by God, but that we can love others as well. And so it's with this understanding, or it's with this idea in my mind anyway, that we continue on through what John continues to tell us. And that is this command, this, this necessary obedience to love. And so we begin with verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now within this section of 1 John, the focus is again primarily on love. John continues this by calling them beloved and reminding them of their status in Christ before God as being loved by God, while also further showing his love for them. And I think that at this point, with how many times we've seen this word beloved, we're getting that point. Um, But he continues. He then reflects on the love of God. What was the evidence that God has loved us? In the previous verses, we found John saying that it was through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. In this case, the love of God has been displayed. This love, which is given to us by the Father, was given, according to John, not because we were so deserving, nor because we were so loving toward God. Instead, despite us not loving him, he sent Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. He first loved us and shows us this love through Jesus. Therefore, because of this great love, which has been poured out through the Son from the Father, we should love each other as well. This statement is similar to the one made in verse 7. However, it's a bit softened here. Whereas there it was a forceful imperative. Here it is a reminder of what God has done, causing us to want to love one another. It is because of him we can and should love one another as he first loved us. Now verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John then shows the significance of loving one another. He begins just as he did previously, by reflecting on the nature of who God is. Previously, when he reflected on the nature of God, it focused on the love of God. Now he considers the reality that no one has ever seen God. This reflects the teachings of Jesus, who informed us that God is spirit. By being spirit, he does not possess physical qualities. This is different this is further reflected in the Old Testament when we see how different from humanity God is. While it is true that we are made in his image, it is also true that God is completely holy, 
completely separate from all others, including us. It is with this reality, then, that John considers the fact that our love has significance. If we love, it shows that God abides in us and that his love is perfected in us. Though no one has ever seen God, it is clear that he is personal. Um, He works within us and around us to bring about his will for his glory. Thus, when we love, we show the world of this God who is invisible. Likewise, we recognize that John says what the ESV translated as in us can also be understood as among us. This way of understanding the text reminds us that this love is made manifest within each individual as well as corporately among individuals. Therefore, when we love, God abides in us, both individually and therefore corporately, and his love is perfected among us individually and corporately. So there is a warning against being loveless. If we are loveless, then our evidence of God abiding among us is unfounded. If, however, we love, then we can have greater assurance of God's work within us. This then leads us to verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. As John has been keen to point out, there are multiple evidences of our salvation. Previously he focused on if we love. Elsewhere he focused on lifestyles, on living righteously, walking as Jesus walked. Now he provides further evidence for us by the working of the Holy Spirit. Some may wonder how this ties into the text. But when we reflect on what John just said concerning love, it flows naturally together. Those who love, in the previous verse, abide in God. Therefore, to abide and to love and to be loved are all tied together. However, this also causes us to reflect on an important point. How do we know the love of God? How are we made aware of his love? Yes, we see his love through the revelation of Jesus Christ, yet individually and corporately, how do we experience that love of God through Jesus? How do we know that the love we are clinging to is really the love of God and not an apparition or some other love? What is the evidence? Who will show us this love is genuine or if this love is genuine? The answer is the Holy Spirit. God converts us by the power of the gospel through his spirit. His spirit then dwells within us and among us as we love each other. By receiving his spirit and by leading and guiding us in our lives, we can know that we abide with God. This spirit is the one who makes known the love of God in us. Likewise, it reminds us that the power of the spirit within us is great and it will cause transformation to occur within us. It is not that we are given the command to love and expected to do it on our own. Instead, we are taught and led by the Spirit to love one another as God has called us to love. It is by the power of God, then, in us that this is made possible. We then come to verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. This final verse reflects on the authority which John is writing. If John were teaching and preaching, there might be some from outside who would be critical of his message and against his authority. How does he argue then against such individuals who might teach and preach things contrary to him and thereby question his authority? 
He argues that what he is teaching and preaching did not originate from him, but originated from God. It also shows that his message is not only proclaimed by himself, but was also given to others. Seen when he says, we have, which recognizes the authority of others as well. While it originates from God, it is also important to remember that God uses individuals to proclaim the message. Those who had seen Jesus, who knew him while he walked on the earth, who listened to his teachings, now testify to what they have seen by proclaiming this message. They testify by proclaiming the teachings of Jesus Christ to others, just as he commanded them to do. Yet, what was it that they had seen? What are they testifying? That the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is the reality in which they have seen in Christ, who lived, died, and rose again. It is through him that we have been saved. Previously, John made the point that through Jesus, the works of the devil are being destroyed. So it is established even further here, that through Jesus, we find salvation. Now, the main point for these verses are to further reflect on the love of God and to give us further evidence that he abides in us through love and his spirit. It is by his spirit we can know that he abides in us and know his love. Ultimately, the apostles have authority which originates from God, not themselves. They have beheld Christ, and so now they proclaim, they testify to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the one who is our Savior. Now this leads us, of course, to our application points. The first one, implications of abiding. Within our world, there are many individuals who claim to know God or have an experience with God. We wonder, though, is it possible that these individuals are deceived? Are they truly having an experience with God? Thankfully, we can know if they have an experience with God according to the scriptures, because those who have an experience with God will be transformed will be changed. Let me use a classic example that I've used here before. Let's say that I was running late. And after a while, I finally arrived and I apologized saying, I am so sorry I was late. I was driving when I got a flat tire on the highway. Unfortunately, one of my lug nuts rolled off into the middle of the road because I am unlucky. And I quickly, though, ran into the road and bam! I was hit by a 20-ton logging truck not related, to, not related to hail forestry. Not related to hail forestry. He's going to say it's a milk truck. Milk truck. Anyway, the point is that being hit by this non-hail forestry logging truck, <laughs> that's why I'm late. I got hit by a huge truck. Sorry. Obviously, there are two possible conclusions you could come to. The first is, I am a liar. The second is, I'm insane. Why? Because one cannot have an experience like that with a logging truck not related to Hale Forestry and not be changed. The classic question, what is bigger, a logging truck or God? It is because of this when one truly has an encounter, an experience with God, it will cause transformation. Much larger than one could even argue a logging truck not related to Hale Forestry and God. This is the reality of those in whom God abides and who abides in him then. It is not that they will continue on in their lives without any change. 
Instead, those who truly do abide in God and God in them will live in a way which is contrary to what they had been living in their sin. This is made evidence by the truth that God has given them his spirit. And his spirit will lead those in whom he dwells by teaching them um, and helping them in this life. However, this does not mean that those in whom the spirit dwells will be perfect. John has already said such a perfection in this place cannot be attained. For we all sin even after we are saved, we continue to sin. Instead, it is a reflection of the lifestyle of one who has been given the Spirit. Too often, we tend to make excuses for those we want to be saved. We very often will make the claim that we've heard their profession of faith. And because of that, regardless what they do or believe, we'll boldly declare them to be saved. Even if they reject all tenets of the faith, we tend to hold on saying that they really are saved. The problem with this is that there are implications for being a Christian. There are effects of God abiding in us and him, we in him. These effects are a desire for righteousness, a continued desire for the glory of God, and knowledge of God in our lives. Though temptations may come, they will come. And evil can come out of those temptations. The overall, the overarching life of the Christian will be one in which shows the evidence of God abiding in them. We have seen John make this case repeatedly within this letter. He continues to show us the necessary implications for genuine salvation. This makes sense, but only when we consider the great reality of salvation. Too often we equate salvation with a choice. We make the choice to be saved, for example. Yet salvation is more than a mortal choice. It involves God Almighty working within us to save us through Jesus Christ, His Son, who is our Savior. Thus, when we consider salvation as a work of God, rather than a work of man, we can grasp how a life can be changed by God, so that there is a transformation of heart, mind, and body. God Himself makes these changes occur in us. Without him, it would be impossible for this transformation to occur. Thus, this does not deny the freedom of the will, but reminds us that apart from the grace of God given to us, our freedom of the will is bound to sin. It is only once God breaks through our sinful natures that transformation can take place. And that only occurs through the proclamation of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. It is this way our wills will be changed by his grace to follow him and seek him rather than run and hide from him. So the point, the encouragement, to remember that if you are saved, it is by the work of God. If you are saved, then the work of God is greater than any work of the world, any power of the world, any failure of self. If he abides in you, you will abide in him. This is an encouragement because it reminds us that our strength This all-consuming power originates from God and not from us. And though we will certainly stumble in this life, God will, as John says above, bring this love to completion. To this we give praise to God. We are never alone if we abide in Him. We We are never left to face the challenges of this life alone if we abide in Him. We can know that we can that we can handle these things if we abide in Him because His Spirit will change us, 
will help us and encourage us to seek righteousness and love. So seek these things knowing that when you do, we can have assurance that the Spirit is working in us to begin with, to help us abide in Him. Now this leads us to our second point, evidence of the unseen God. Previously, John made the important point that no one has ever seen God. Um, And then this is not reflecting on the idea that Jesus came from God, therefore he was the only one to see God. We're going to ignore that theological point for now. Focus on this one. This is important for us to remember because God is spirit. We are created in the image of God, yet the reality is that God is altogether different from us as well. He is not like us. And because of that, it should cause us to have a righteous fear of God. Yet it should also cause us to consider the reality that God is different, though he is different, He is not impersonal. So it is, God has granted us knowledge and evidence of himself. He has done this in a number of ways. What is emphasized here, however, is that God makes himself known when we love. When we practice the love of God for each other, then God abides among us personally and corporately, and the love of God is being perfected in us, causing us to see more clearly his love when we love as he has called us to love. Thus, we are instruments of his glory. We partake of the great love of God through us. um, His majesty is displayed for others to bear witness to. His spirit within us, causing this community to grow in love and truth, makes God known among us and further to those who are outside of the congregation. It is with this we consider something rather profound. In the Old Testament, It is made known in Genesis 1-2 through that humans were created to bear God's image. This is interesting when we consider it in context of ancient cultures. In ancient cultures, humans were often um, created accidentally. For example, the blood of a fallen god mixing with the earth, that's how humans were made. Or made simply to serve and appease the gods. According to scriptures, however, humans have a high purpose. They have a high honor of being made in his image. This is astounding to consider. It is even more astounding to consider when we think of the commandment that we are not to make graven images or idols. Why is that such an affront to God to make these things? Why is it that when we are commanded not to create idols, why is it so serious? When we consider the Old Testament context, all of the religions practiced idolatry in some capacity. Now the way that idol worship works is an idol would be made by human hands. It would be made out of wood or stone. It would represent the deity to whom it corresponded. Then the deity would indwell the idol, and the people would worship before this idol. They would bring sacrifices to the idol. They would practice whatever means of worship before the idol. Because in their view, it was before their very God. This seems odd to us now, but the truth is, such idol worship continues even today. I will never forget going into a Hindu temple when I was in seminary. I know you're wondering, why were you in a Hindu temple? Don't worry about it. It was a trip to different places of religious worship. So we visited a Buddhist temple, a mosque, a Mormon temple, um, or a visitation center, because we're not allowed in a temple if you're not Mormon. And we also visited those who practice Hinduism. What was so fascinating about the visit to the Hindu temple was that they had an idol with fruit in front of the idol. 
It was then I realized just how significant and hard it must have been for those in the first century to understand when Paul, when he discusses eating food sacrificed to idols, because for so long it had been so distant. But when presented before your eyes, it makes things a lot clearer. Regardless, this was the same way they understood idols in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Still, we wonder, why did God forbid idols? The answer lies in this. God already made his own idols far greater than the ones that could be made by human hands. His idols. They were humans. We are God's idols. God doesn't need idols of wood and stone. He has idols of human flesh. That's what is so significant of the term image bearers. We are image bearers. It is in this that he dwells in us. And in this way, humanity has such great ability. And yet why the fall is so painful to consider. It is also why it is so significant for us to read today that God makes himself known among us. It is why it is so significant for the Holy Spirit to come upon us. He gives his spirit to those image bearers who are in his son, to us, just as the pagans believe that their false gods indwelled their idols of wood and stone. So it is in this same way that we are able to love as God was called us to love. He indwells us, we who are made in his image, who are able to partake of what God originally created us to be. We are able to love as he loved because he is in us, loving us, and showing us what love is, and guiding us toward loving others. Consider then the implications of who you are. You are created in the image of God, and if you are in Christ, his spirit dwells within you. He dwells within you, and you are able to glorify God. You are used by God to be the evidence of this unseen God, to show that he exists. He makes himself known through you and I individually and then further makes himself known through us corporately. Paul uses the analogy that we should shine like lights or stars. I think that this is fitting since the psalmist reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So too do we when God brings us salvation and we abide in him and him in us. Something which was impossible on our own to achieve is achieved in us by the power of God himself. Our greatest purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If God is in you, then this great purpose is being worked out through you. Therefore, never think of yourself as something small or less than who God has created you to be. You have great worth being made in his image, and your worth is far beyond this when the one who was always meant to dwell within you does. So remember this great message, that we are the evidence of the unseen God. He makes himself known. This should give us great joy knowing that the almighty God of all who created this vast universe loves us personally and is glorified through us. This same glory which belongs to God will be given to us if we are in Christ. And in this we can find exceedingly great love, joy, and peace. Now, the whole world, point number three. Something we consider is when John says that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, or the world. When we read this, it is tempting for us to become universalists. Those who hold to universalism believe that all people and all things will be redeemed by Christ, even the devil himself. 
One can see why one would hold such a view with verses like these. But before we jump to that conclusion, we want to consider what John is saying in context. By that, we want to understand what John means by world. Does John mean that Jesus saves the whole world? By this, does Jesus save everything as the universalists would believe? It seems within context that this is not the case, since John is specifically talking about individuals, um, which leads to corporate identity. So we can cross off the idea that John means all of the world or all things, since it seems humans are the focus here. So the next question is, does this mean all people? Or better asked, does God save all individuals through Jesus the Son? The answer to that, according to what we have seen throughout 1 John, seems to be no. John has already condemned those who are not of God by claiming that those who do not hold the doctrinal, ethical, and relational teachings of Jesus and his apostles are not in life, but in death. Life, in John, implies Jesus, who is the life, as well as the giver of eternal life. Thus, to be in death is to be separate from Christ, and therefore not experience him as Savior, at least not experience salvation through him. What then... Does John mean when he says that Jesus is the Savior of the world? The most logical understanding of this is that Jesus breaks all boundaries set up by man. Um, In the Old Testament, in the early New Testament periods, there were only two races, Jews and Gentiles. Those who were Jews were part of the people of God, the children of Abraham. Everyone else was on the outside. Then Jesus came. And through him, there are no longer Gentiles or Jews, but there are one in Christ. This implies that the salvation which comes by Jesus Christ transcends barriers. It means Jesus has undone the Tower of Babel, where once we were all separated by our different ethnicities and tongues, we are now brought together under the banner of Christ while Christ cleanses these different ethnicities. What I mean by this is, People in Africa live in different ethnic scenarios scenarios than we do. They have their own forms of worship. They have their own songs. They have their own experiences which are unique to them. And we praise God for them and for their uniqueness. Just as we have our different style of worship which glorifies God, so do others who are different from us. In this way, Jesus cleanses their and our ethnic identities by allowing them and us to worship him through our different perspectives. Yet, you would likely find that doctrinally, we would agree with these individuals completely. For example, consider some of those who are in the inner city. Their form of worship is rap and hip-hop. They write some of the most profound, inspirational Christian lyrics you will ever encounter. And when you hear their lyrics, you begin to see you agree with them completely with what they're saying. Their way of worship is very different than our own. Yet like the organ or the guitar or the piano, Christ cleanses their art forms for the glory of himself and praise. That said, this is what it ultimately means when Christ is the savior of the world. He is able to save these different people of different ethnicities and different social statuses. Kings can find salvation in Christ, just as paupers can. Those in the tundra up north can find salvation in Christ, as those in the desert. Those in the mountains of PA can find Christ, as those in New York City. Then, once we're saved, he bathes us all in his blood. 
cleansing these cultural elements for his own glory and praise through us. In this way, Jesus is the Savior of the world without being the Savior of everyone and everything. In this, we can praise God for his salvation and for our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is through him we find this great redemption of our lives, no matter who we are or the circumstances we find ourselves in. So praise the God of the high and the mighty. Praise the God of the low and the weak. Praise the God who builds these bridges over these barriers and through these barriers, who unifies us and breaks the Tower of Babel through the working of his Spirit and his Son, Jesus Christ. How worthy is our God to move in such ways. How great is his salvation. So it is with this we consider the great gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through the gospel we are able to know God, to know his love. His spirit moves within the gospel. And so if you're only, so if you're only, um, so if you've heard this one time or a thousand times, every time it should encourage your heart to abide in him. For he who works through this message, giving us life from death by the power of his Holy Spirit and the proclamation of this gospel of grace is God himself. It all begins with our origins. All things were created by God ex nihilo, by the power of the word of God. He brought forth this cosmos out of nothing. He is the first cause, so to speak. Last of all, the cosmos to be created was humanity which he created to be his image bearers. And because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, and shows hesed, we can as well. It is here we find all traces of worth and dignity and sanctity to human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience, which leads to life, or disobedience, which leads to sin and death. Unfortunately, We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. And it's because of this we have broken relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world. It is because of this all humanity continues to accrue a greater moral guilt before our very righteous and holy and just God. This is human sorrow beyond sorrow. To be in this darkness without any hope from within ourselves. Yet hope is not foreign to us. Instead, we have hope because God exists. And not only this, but because he is not silent. Instead, he spoke his word and sent his light into the darkness. And that is Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by his wounds we are healed. His blood we are justified before our righteous God. We are no longer declared guilty before our God. Instead, we stand redeemed. In righteousness. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life over death. And it's through Him we can have victory over sin in this life as well. We are, obe- we are in need to be obedient of two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn from our sins and turn toward God. We are to live a lifestyle according to the scriptures for the glory of God and His holy name. We are to walk in step with the Spirit of God in us. In this way, we bear good fruit in our lives in love. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. We cannot attain salvation on our own. None can reach the glory of God on their own. Instead, we need to place our faith in Jesus Christ for our justification before God 
by what he has done. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, we receive this salvation. For those who are disobedient, there is only judgment. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand. Even our best deeds are filthy compared to the holiness and righteousness of God. Therefore, there is only one result of the life lived in this manner, and that is condemnation for sin. For those who are obedient, however, there is no longer this condemnation. We can live a lifestyle which does glorify God instead of sin. We can experience the love of God reserved only for His Son. And we do, in the end, inherit an eternal kingdom of peace with our God forever, no longer experiencing death, but an eternal life. Let this be the final encouragement for you, to stand for this gospel, to remember your status as image bearers of God and what it means for God to be in you, to dwell with you, to be among us. Let's continue to proclaim this great gospel in the great God of our salvation. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the savior of the world, through whom we have found our salvation from death to life and have attained the everlasting love of God, which we can display for the world to see. Amen. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this love. We thank you for your spirit which dwells within us if we are in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you change us, that we don't have to believe that we're just a machine that can't be changed, but that we are unique, we are personal, and that you can change us personally for the good, for the better, for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to do so. We trust you to be able to do so not for just ourselves, but because you are truly glorified through us and that should give us such great joy that it should cause us to burst, knowing that it is true. So Lord, be with us, guide us,